0: Welcome to the Education and Empowerment Podcast. In this show, our hosts explore success and advancement through education by interviewing today's top leaders in the fields of education, business, and technology in order to provide insight into what it really takes to succeed. This show is brought to you by Forstay, a SaaS-enabled online booking marketplace for student and intern housing. Forstay provides turnkey all-in-one cloud-based accommodation software solutions for colleges, universities, and organizations. Learn more at offcampus.forstay.com and landlords.forstay.com. All right, let's get into the show.
1: You're tuned to Education and Empowerment Podcast. This is your host, Bakhtia and I'm coming to you with an amazing episode interview of the president of Association of American Colleges and Universities, Lynn Pasquarella. Lynn Pascarella was appointed president of Association of American Colleges and Universities in 2016 after serving the 18th president of Mount Holyoke College. She has held positions as provost at the University of Hartford and vice provost for academic affairs and dean of graduate school at the University of Rhode Island, a philosopher whose work has combined teaching and scholarship with local and global engagement. Lynn Pasquarella has written extensively on medical ethics, metaphysics, public policy, and philosophy of law. She's also the president of Phi Beta Kappa Society and host on Northeast Public Radio, The Academic Minute. She's also a recipient of Mary Baldwin University's Sullivan Award for Outstanding Service to Humanity. Ms. Pasquarella serves as a member of advisory board of the Newman Owens Foundation and sits on the boards of the Lingman Foundation and the National Humanities Alliance, as well as George Washington University Hospital's Ethics Committee. Named by the diverse issue as one of the higher education's top 35 leaders, Lynn Pascarella is a graduate of Quinnibag Wally Community College, Mount Holyoke College, and Brown University, Ms. Pascarella has also received honorary doctorates from Elizabethtown College, Bishops' University, and University of South Florida, University of Hartford, and University of Rhode Island. In this episode, Ms. Pascarella and I are discussing about how to connect the dots for those who are thinking about preparing young people for global citizenship. All right, without further ado, let's right dive into this amazing episode. Hello, and welcome to Education and Empowerment Podcast. Today, I'm very thrilled to welcome Lynn Pasquarella. She is the CEO, President of American Association of Colleges and Universities. And in this episode, we are going to be discussing a numerous of topics. But the main topic that we're going to discuss is going to be about bridging the gap. How do we connect the dots for higher education stakeholders? And we'll make the case for preparing young people for global citizenship without further ado, Ms Lynn, welcome to our show.
2: Thank you so much. It's my pleasure to be here.
1: We are very thrilled and we wanted to get start our episode by asking you if there's any quote that inspires you.
2: There are no particular quotes, but when I think about what inspires me, I turn repeatedly to essays by Bart Giamatti, his Green Fields of the Mind, and Tolstoy's My Confessions. While seemingly disparate, both essays have in common a focus on the frailty of human existence and how to find meaning and purpose given the inevitability of death.
1: That's amazing. That's amazing. And, you know, many young people are going through those at the moment. They are trying to find, you know, the meaning and purpose through higher education and through the work that they do. How, if you were to reflect back, you know, tell us how you got started in higher education in the first place.
2: My journey to higher education is, I think, certainly unpredictable. I graduated from high school at the age of 17 and attended a local community college that had just opened up in the town in which I lived. I had a a full scholarship to go to my state's flagship university, but decided to attend a community college so that I could be a caregiver for my mother. Who was chronically ill. Neither of my parents had the opportunity to graduate from high school. My father joined the war effort following Pearl Harbor Day when he was only 16 years old. And my mother got married at 16 at a time when you couldn't be married and be in school. Oh, wow. And so she gave up her dream of being an English teacher. When I was 11 years old, she became a single parent. And both my parents spent their careers working in factories. I had the opportunity to work alongside her in a light switch factory where she was doing piecework when I was 16 and, and was able to escape that that work only because of funding under a Federal Comprehensive Employment Training Act, the CETA funds. And I went to school under Pell Grants and Perkins loans, and it transformed my life. My first semester in college, I had a philosophy professor who was asking questions that I I thought I was the only one asking a pugilist, but I became enthralled with philosophy and those kinds of questions about meaning and purpose in life. And so two years later I transferred to Mount Holyoke College and, and was a philosophy major. And then two years after that, I was headed off to Brown for my PhD in philosophy. And what I wanted to do was to to spend my career engaged in working with students in in grappling with those most fundamental questions of human existence. And so that was my start in higher education.
1: That's amazing. And that's very inspiring. I think, you know, each one of us have that story that transforms the way we think, the way we act, the way we lead. And, and you know, I'm I'm sure that, you know, those experiences shaped for the work that you do now, you know, inspiring and leading such a big association that has its footprints in higher education to its successes and you know, coming over the challenges and and opportunities. And I was hoping that you could tell us a little bit more about the work that you do with the American Association of Colleges and Universities, perhaps shed more light into, you know, why does it exist and what's the mission and the vision and what kind of work it does with uh, educational institutions in the United States.
2: The mission of AACNU was to advance the vitality and public standing of liberal education by making equity and quality the foundations for excellence in undergraduate education in service to democracy. And so we recognize that inextricable link between liberal education and our nation's historic mission of educating for democracy. When I graduated from Brown, I I left with a deep and abiding commitment to providing access to excellence in higher education, regardless of socioeconomic background, to certainly the, the centrality of liberal education but also to advancing Benjamin Barber's notion of colleges and universities as civic missions, where we not only educate people to be free, but we free them to be educable by serving as a visible force in the lives of those who are the most underserved members of society. Right. AAC&U has, has provided this wonderful format, forum for engaging in all of this work. And it, it's been my honor and privilege to to serve as its president.
1: That's amazing. As I'm hearing this, you know, I'm reflecting on on the ten years. I mean, a decade from you know, 2011, 2010. I mean, it's been always there, but I've been noticing a lot of pressure on the past decade from the public, and and seems like public is losing trust in you know, higher education. What would you say is the root cause for that? I mean, what triggered all of this?
2: It's interesting because in the 80s, certainly with Ronald Reagan's presidency, uh, his governorship a decade before, there was a shift away from the notion of higher education as a public good to viewing it as a private commodity. Mm -hmm. And that coincided with colleges and universities opening the gates to students of color, to first-generation students, to women. And now we have gotten to the point where that commodification of higher education has resulted in this notion of tuition in exchange for jobs. So there's pressure. We see legislation introduced in a number of states, Florida, for instance, where they were trying to remove funding for Bright Futures scholarships if students weren't majoring in a field that was deemed immediately employable. So the evisceration of the liberal arts and sciences, a focus on on STEM and not only on STEM but on jobs. Right. And so that's that's fueled this current. Prevailing national rhetoric that has called into question the value of higher education in general and a liberal education in particular.
1: That's, yeah yeah you're so right. And, and if you were to name maybe you know a couple of initiatives that you know you're proud of that either you know association itself or the member members of the you know association are currently doing into helping transform that into more kind of a a positive you know worldview about you know higher education in America, what would those be?
2: Oh, there's so much remarkable work taking place at colleges and universities of all types across the country and indeed around the world, and our membership reflects not only national institutions, but, but global institutions. And, you know, I'm most proud of the work that we are doing now at this moment of of racial reckoning to jettison a belief in a hierarchy of human value through our work with Truth, Racial Healing, and Transformation Campus Centers. Our work with Ibu Patel and speaking across religious differences. Ibu leads the Interfaith Youth Corps, Our work around global initiatives, civic engagement, where we are focusing on the transformative power of higher education, not only in help serving as an economic catalyst, but in preparing students for work citizenship. And we have STEM initiatives to diversify STEM, a project called Value, the Ballot Assessment of Learning in Undergraduate Education that's pushing back against standardized tests that we know disadvantage students of color, women, other students who are subject to stereotype threat, looking at assessing students in a way that is more equitable. And so the, those are the basis for right. program around open educational resources, around rubric design, enhancing teaching in ways that ensures that colleges and universities are places of welcome and belonging for all students at all institutions.
1: And it's not an easy job. I mean, as you say this, you know, I'm I'm sure this is a lot of work that needs to be done. And and it's, you know, not a single institution. It it takes, you know, as an African proverb, it takes a village to raise a child. So it takes entire higher education and all the stakeholders to commit uh, to this mission and vision. And I really applaud uh, the work that you do there. Look forward to, you know, all the new transformations that, you know, are going to happen soon. And, you know, as I'm thinking about this, I wonder if the whole COVID-19 added another layer of challenges to the work that you've been doing, and if you were to reflect on 2020 and 2021, what have you noticed? Can you elaborate on this a little bit?
2: It, It certainly added a layer of complexity. What we have known for several years is that the current financial model for higher education is unsustainable. We can't continue to raise tuition, have burgeoning loan burdens, especially at times when job prospects for college graduates are uncertain. What we saw from COVID-19, despite the pivot to remote and online learning that was really astounding on the part of institutions across the country, was the food and shelter insecurities experienced by students at all types of institutions, but also the expansiveness of the digital divide with right. students lining up in to, to get computers or in digital parking lots because they didn't have access to internet or didn't have broadband, high-speed internet. And so the equity issues have come to the fore of higher education at this moment of, of racial reckoning. So we need to reinvigorate, reimagine higher education in a way that is going to center this equity mandate and I think that's what we've learned most from from this. Because when we look at my my colleague, Siever Sheldon does work on cognitive bandwidth and the ways in which food and shelter insecurity, homophobia, racism, sexism, ableism, reduce the capacity of students to engage in learning, which makes sense. You can't worry about how you're going to do on your next biology exam if you think you're going to get beaten to death because you're living in your car or you're worried about where your next meal is going to come from. Right, recognizing the, the ways in which higher education needs to go beyond teaching disciplines, but also in making sure that we are these places of welcome and belonging focuses on issues of cognitive bandwidth, the psychosocial issues, the well-being, a whole student, as, as we haven't in the past. It's been a you know survival of the fittest approach. And, and that's no longer adequate as we address um, the equity imperative in higher education today.
1: That's amazing. As you're saying this, you know, it it reminds me of my conversations with numerous leaders like yourself, you know, across higher education in the United States. And the conversations we have with them is around, you know, student success outside of classroom. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of research into how, you know, students only get about 15% of, you know, uh, what they learn from the classroom, and then 85% of it comes from outside of classroom. And, So, you know, higher education leaders like yourself are tasked with creating environment that is inclusive and that prepares the student as a whole, not just, you know, for that classroom experience, but also, you know, the living situation and the subject uh, that you also addressed about, you know, racial discrimination, so different type of, you know, discriminations that are out there. And and I'm very, you know, honored to be speaking with you today because, you know, as a leader of such an influential higher education institution association, you are at the front of the decision-making process and, and you help other leaders to help shape, you know, where the future is going. So, you know, I, I'm sure our podcast listeners will be curious to hear to What kind of lessons would you share with our podcast listeners who could be, you know, college presidents or, you know, VPs and and people who are running higher education institutions, to address them into the lessons about uh, improving undergraduate um, and graduate education and advancing liberal education? You know, what can we do uh, and what can we collectively do? right, to prepare young people for global citizenship.
2: Oh, there's so much embedded in that question, and thank you for it. I think more than ever, institutions need to demonstrate that they are anchors in their communities, illustrating that their success is inextricably linked to the psychological, social, educational, economic well-being of the members in the communities in which they're located and those they seek to serve, of higher education as existing within the ivory tower, our power as public intellectuals to speak to those outside of the academy in ways that resonate with them. If we hope to make any progress in restoring public trust in the promise of of liberal education and indeed inclusive excellence, we also have to focus on student success, not just providing access to higher education, Right, but supporting ways for students to to complete that education, and and so you mentioned this that you know studies from Gallup have shown that students are successful when they have faculty members who reach out to them outside of the classroom, students right. who engage in hands-on learning, addressing real-world problems. So every institution needs to provide those opportunities for all students to engage in high-impact practices to address the unscripted problems of the future, to apply their knowledge and skills in ways that allow them some agency, to to center on the issues that matter to them most, and to connect curriculum to career in ways that are going to position them for success in in work, citizenship, and life. And so that that involves community-engaged learning, service learning projects, intern applied learning that's integrative. That right. doesn't focus on disciplines as a disconnected silos, but rather as varied approaches to the same enlightened end.
1: Yeah, you're right. I'm kind of thinking about this also from a perspective of you know parents or or the public. What advice would you give to? you know, the public, so to speak, the collective of parents and others who are involved in, you know, higher education, whether it be service providers or, you know, the different partners, you know, across the spectrum, what can we do together to help move that to the next level?
2: If we've learned anything from COVID-19, the ensuing financial crisis, this moment of racial reckoning, is that the the problems of the future, like COVID-19, are not going to be resolved through narrow technical training, but rather through a liberal arts and sciences education. When I think about what physicians had to deal with, other healthcare givers had to deal with in relation to COVID-19, it didn't matter how much technical training they had in the sciences when they had to make decisions about who should get the last ventilator, whether to hold hands with a dying patient, or who had no family because of hospital-imposed Restrictions on visitors or whether to go treat somebody who might survive, whether to risk the lives of their own families by continuing to work when they didn't have access to the proper protective equipment. And, and so these kinds of ethical dilemmas, the moral distress that they faced, the need to allocate scarce resources, wasn't something that going to be resolved through their training in science, but through this integrative approach to learning in the humanities and the social sciences. And this is the kind of education that will prepare students for success in the future. An education that prepares them to be adaptable and flexible in the face of rapid change, to engage in moral imagination, imagining what it's like to be in the shoes of another different from oneself. These are skills that are central to a liberal education that are essential to thriving in the 21st century and beyond.
1: That's right. That's right. And as you mentioned, I think during COVID, you know, one of the, one of the things that we learned at Four Day by talking to so many institutions is that leaders were, you know, tasked, obviously, as you said, trying to decide, you know, where things will go. Should they be serving parents or should they be serving the faculty? And it was very hard to make those decisions. And, and a lot of those reflections and strategic thinking helped them uh, realize that there are a lot of uh, unnecessary, or how would I phrase this? Other processes that uh, you know could be done differently. If you were to address these leaders who are currently tasked figuring out how to navigate within those limited resources, what areas would you pinpoint to them to say, stop this, or don't focus on this, or what are you seeing across the board from different institutions that you'd like to share through our podcast?
2: There's such enormous pressure on campus leaders to respond to short-term tactical issues as opposed to engaging in long-term strategic planning. You know, you have a a board of trustees, alumni, you've got faculty, staff, students, community members, and and each might have different desires. Um, So the goal, of course, is to always be transparent, to communicate as much as possible, to ensure that people understand why you're making the decision you're making, even if it's not one with which they agree. So collaboration, cooperation, transparency, and demonstrating a, a genuine commitment to shared governance, but but focusing on the long-term and ensuring that all of your decisions are grounded in the mission, vision, and values of the institution is, is I think, the best that we can do in these trying moments.
1: This is so empowering. This is so empowering. And as we kind of wrapping up our episode, I was hoping that you would leave us with a a piece of wisdom or any quote on either education or empowerment.
2: You know, Mark Twain once said that all schools, all colleges have two great functions to confer and to conceal valuable knowledge. (laughs) We have to prove him wrong Uh, in order to restore public trust in in higher education. We need to be in the force, uh, a force in the lives of of those outside of the academy, making sure that we are co-creators of knowledge, taking advantage of local epistemologies, and understanding the limits of our own resources. Otherwise, we end up doing, as, as Michael Sandel suggests, creating a tyranny of merit.
1: Wow! Wow! This is very inspirational, and you know, on behalf of Education and Empowerment podcast, and, um, on behalf of you know four State team, we. I really applaud the work that you do and looking forward to seeing where education is taking us. And we know that higher education is at good hands because of leaders like yourself. So thank you so much for coming to our podcast. You know, until our next show, we'll talk to you soon.
2: Thank you. My pleasure.
1: Excellent. Thank you so much.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Education and Empowerment Podcast. This show is brought to you by Forstay, a saas enabled online booking marketplace for student and intern housing. Forstay provides turnkey, all-in-one, cloud-based accommodation software solutions for colleges, universities, and organizations. Learn more at offcampus.forstay.com and landlords.forstay.com.